complex adaptive systems work differently compared to a simple system where you know what the output is and what the input is. You can change it, you get the answer. Here, you poke certain things and something else changes. You start thinking the whole system on how it operates and try to build the best model so that you can try to experiment into the best solution that you want. This is Equivalent to Magic, a show about the tech wizards behind the most influential companies and platforms. I'm Steve Herod. And I'm Quentin Clark. Together, we're going deep with the technical executives, product developers, and engineers about how they dream, design, and build their way to scale. In this episode, Sri Viswanath, the Chief Technology Officer at Atlassian. Over the last two decades, Atlassian has become the leading creator of enterprise project management software. Its suite of tools, and I'm sure you used a lot of these, include Jira, Confluence, and Trello, products that guide the workflows of many Fortune 500 companies. Shree's been CTO at Atlassian for more than five years. He's a deep thinker, and he's comfortable inside complex adaptive systems, and he's constantly tweaking his technical teams' processes to spark continued innovations. Shree has held a variety of senior leadership roles at Groupon, at VMware, where we work together, and at Sun Microsystems. In this interview, we'll discuss his appetite for complexity, his approach to constant improvement, and how Atlassian develops new products. Sri prioritizes progress over perfection in any of the projects his team works on. His approach is informed by none other than Albert Einstein. I love telling Einstein's story. Uh, Einstein had just finished a class. Uh, his TA asked him, a student asked him, Einstein, you gave the same test to the students. And he's like, yeah, 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 it was the same test. And the student says, you gave the same test to the students two years in a row. And Einstein says, yeah, but the answers have changed. And this was back in the day. And this is even more true for technology when change is accelerating. And the only way we can keep up is by continuous improvement. So what does that mean for developing software? Well, it means the work is never done on a particular product. I say this to people, if you improve 1% a day, you are 37 times better at the end of the year. And it, that shows when an organization, when you have to, especially technical organization, you're solving customer problems. You want to solve the customer problem in the best possible way, get it to some place and release it to customers and then iterate and improve. And having that constant continuous improvement culture and tools and practices helps you get better over time. But problems inevitably arise, and fixing them can mean retooling the development process. And we basically stepped back and said, we need to answer five whys and say, why is this happening? And redo certain things. And this was the thing where I said, we had this closed loop system we were measuring, but the improvements that we were doing wasn't improving. So during that five alarm fire month, what happened was we changed number of processes. He gave his teams more control over improving reliability. Now his teams have the tools to manage problems and keep improving products without constant supervision. What this has evolved to today is each team, they have their own retrospectives. And at some point, I don't even have to get involved. They call a two alarm fire or one alarm fire or three alarm fire in their own teams and they pause for a week or two and then they improve reliability. And that process of improvement works really well when you have this closed system and set up systems so that each team can operate on their own independently. We talk with Shri about how he's refined that system to maximize transparency, reliability, 
an improvement at Atlassian. It goes back to having transparency across the teams and not having a blaming culture. It's extremely important for people to feel like it's safe to declare that we failed and let's explain why we failed. So going back to having a good culture on blameless culture, extremely important, right? So you set that up first as a culture basic. And once you have that, then you have tools in place where when you are writing things, it's available for different people. As you can expect in Atlassian, we use our own tools and Confluence is open by default. So we have teams that blog saying, we declared a two alarm fire and these are all the things why it happened. And then at the end of the two alarm fire, when they call it off, they say, these are the things that we learned and these are the things that other teams should not do. And there is a collection of those. And new people coming in have a library of things that they can look at saying, wow, with the kinds of products that we have, these are the kinds of things that can go wrong and let me not fall into the same mistakes. That learning loop happens. That's actually a pretty good transition. A lot of what you're speaking to are frameworks and processes you put in place as a CTO, as a technical leader. Can you sort of give us a a sense, an overview of how you think about the role of a chief technology officer and and how you think about overseeing, you know, the the product and engineering work and the technical teams, et cetera. Let me uh, go over my role. I run all of engineering. I run security. I like I run partnerships for Atlassian and IT. I start with Atlassian's mission is to unleash potential of all teams. So we are in the collaboration space, and we are in the DevOps, IT market, and all teams market and agile market. So we are in specific markets. We have a number of products in our portfolio, Jira Software, Confluence, Trello, Bitbucket, Jira Service Manager. We service more than 200,000 customers across the globe. The other thing that we also do is to build a platform. Because we are a multi-product company, it doesn't make sense for us to have features duplicated across multiple products. And we also have a marketplace that we expose with APIs and build a marketplace. So we build a platform that is shared set of components across all these products. So I manage execution of all the products and building out the platform, which is critical for Atlassian success. In fact, recently we opened our, we wrote our cloud engineering overview guide, which describes all the services that we have built over the last five years. It's a long read. So if you are starting to read that, get a big cup of coffee and then it'll take a while. It's more than 30 minutes read. So fascinating. As you spoke about what you oversee at Atlassian, one of the points you're making here is it's a multi-product company. And so it's a it's a pretty diverse landscape really that you're that you're overseeing. And it's a it is a pretty diverse set of users that you have, you know, with different job roles and sort of different motivations, et cetera. How does that do you think influence the technical team that you've built and the kinds of skills that they need to have and how they might need to work? Yeah. Let me first tell you how Atlassian is different from other companies. It gives color to how we operate in product and engineering. Atlassian's business model is different. It's land and expand model. Unlike other enterprise companies that have a large sales organization, we don't have a large sales organization. We build products that can sell itself. And the business model that we have is we build awesome products. We target a huge TAM. uh, We land in specific companies We price it low and give huge value. We only sell online. We have a number of things that are different from other companies. We price online. We have all products. 
that can be tried for free and easily bought online. We have no forms or gates. We don't do any custom contracts. The price you see is the price you pay. So it's a bit different from how other enterprise companies operate. What it does is it has a very different growth profile in growth in terms of in how companies use. Our products, Jira and Confluence, for example, lands in a company. One team uses it. They love the product. They become champions. They tell other teams inside and the second team starts using it. Over time, they are using more products and more services. They start upgrading to premium products. We have marketplace with marketplace apps. So they start using marketplace apps on top and they start using it for different use cases with all our products. So that's our land and expand model, which is pretty unique compared to other companies. And coming back to your question on how it changes R&D, it actually is very different in how we operate. For us, we not only build our products, but we have to build it so that it sells itself. And it sells itself to different types of teams. We target technology teams. We have people who are non-technical people who need to use our products, so it needs to be ease of use. And uh, we have been around for... 15 plus years. So it needs to work with new users who come in today. It also needs to work with people who are extremely advanced users for 15 years. Needs to work for a two-person startup in garage and also Fortune 500 companies. We have most of the Fortune 500 companies using our products. We also allow extreme customization with all the APIs and the marketplace that we build needs to work with that. We have built out the cloud side. So we used to be both on-prem and cloud. We are heavily focused on cloud and we are moving to cloud. And our products have to adopt all the platform services that we build and make it all self-service so customers don't have to worry about having a large professional services building it. So that's all the complexities that goes beyond other companies, other enterprise companies building it. On our technical teams, all this makes it different. We hire talented engineers. We have super smart engineers, as you can imagine. We we are a teamwork company. Our ticker symbol is team. We focus a lot on teamwork and making sure the teams play well. The big part is it's not just that they work well in a team. We want to become a model of how that's built. And we take those concepts and put it inside our products. So we know that transparency, for example, builds trust in the team. We try to put transparency as a concept into our products. Confluence, uh, like I said, is open by default. So when you blog something in a company, it's visible to the whole company. So there, there are those things that we do. And if you compare with other companies, we invest roughly about 40% of revenue on R&D, which is one of the highest investment as a percentage of revenue in the kinds of companies, enterprise companies around. So. All that makes it different. We have companies like SpaceX and NASA and other mission-critical use cases that customers use. The way we try to scale uh, over time is to create these what we call triad leadership teams with product design and engineering working together in small teams as possible so that they can own a specific feature, a specific microservice, and deliver end-to-end. So that's the rough overview of how we are set up. Yeah. And while we're talking about teams, I guess two other things I'd like to dig into. One is the remote nature of everybody, not just during COVID, but in general. But then also just you personally, you've been through a, a bunch of leadership roles at, at Sun, VMware, and Groupon. 
but you're now, I think there's almost 5,000 employees in your group. Maybe you can talk about how those two challenges, a growing org and a, an increasingly remote org, have uh, challenged you in your executive role. When I joined Atlassian, my org was roughly about 500 people, I would say. It's grown like eightfold today. Right, so the complexity of the org has definitely increased over time. We have acquired companies, we have built new products in-house, so the number of products have increased. So overall complexity has increased. The, the thing that I am really lucky is I've built an amazing leadership team. So I used to be the person who had to get the right people on the bus and hold the high bar. Now all my leadership team does that, so we have built out an organization that can be high-performing with uh, amazing, talented engineers. I focus a lot on making sure that we can increase velocity and make sure that we have systems in place so that we can keep executing on all these different initiatives that we have by having a loosely coupled, highly aligned teams. Right, the, Those two concepts of trying to make sure that we are highly aligned across all these different initiatives, especially when you have a platform that consists of so many different components, and I'm happy to cover the different things that we have built in the platform. But coordinating between those and making sure that the products actually leverage them and we get the benefit of the platform both internally and externally, that alignment extremely important. There are different ways companies do it. One of them would be brute force, top down, and making sure that you coordinate a lot and have a ton of people trying to coordinate. Not as scalable, right? How you want to set it up is to have it loosely coupled. We have more than 1,500 microservices running in production. We want to make sure that each of those teams can run as fast as possible with clear APIs, but still be fully aligned with the overall mission. So we use tools like OKRs as a company-level mechanism to have goals at the highest level and try to have each of the teams try to align to those and then make sure that that all fits well in the overall mission of the company. Yeah, that's a great way of, of structuring and, and scaling. And you talked about these triads working as these units, these engineering units of capacity to go tackle work and loosely coupling, but there's a balance there, right? Between these sort of company objectives and, and responsibilities or commitments you have to, to larger customers or to a roadmap and that loosely coupled execution. You know, what do you see as not just your role, but really the role of the leadership that's around you in in sort of binding that together and keeping things reasonably coordinated, even with you know that execution freedom you're talking about. The thing that we try to do is to create these guardrails and focus on what needs to happen so that we can unblock teams that can run on its own. Uh, certain things work really well in terms of how we set it up. We use our own tools. As you can imagine, we dog food every one of our products and we use it extensively. For uh, making decisions, we have this, we use this framework called DESI, where there is a clear decider and the clear people who work on it and who approves the decision and things like that. So the DESI framework, it has, there's a template on Confluence and teams write these DACs and it's documented so you can go back and check what decisions are made. And if there is something wrong, then we can go back and figure out if there's a bigger involvement needed. There is always a learning loop in that. Uh, we also have all the post-incident reviews, PIRs, in terms of when you have an incident to learn from it, all documented in JIRA so that 
you can go back and check all the PARs. We, in fact, also block some of the PARs. I would say the transparency piece is important, as I mentioned, the culture of making sure that people understand. And all this fits together when the triad knows what the context is on what we are trying to achieve. And they have the OKRs that I mentioned goals at the top level that's crisply defined. So we spend a lot of time to make sure that the metrics that we have and the goals that we have are crisp. And in fact, we spend enormous time to make sure that that's as crisp as possible and try to communicate all the way down so that it's fully aligned. Do you um, mind talking, Sri, about, you know, it is a pretty strong culture and a strong set of, whether it's Stacy or other things that you use in this model. What's the onboarding like for some of these mini employees as you're bringing them from all over the world? How do you get them engaged in this process early on? Yeah, I, I should say we are a very distributed company, right? Even before COVID times, we were, I had nine different dev centers, and we were more in more than 13 different geolocations with a heavy presence in Australia, Sydney, which is where the company started. We have a heavy presence in Bay Area and in India, but we are also in a number of other locations in uh, Europe and rest of uh, US. At Atlassian, we have decided that we'll be remote first going forward, which means that it's optional for people to go back into offices. They can if they want to, but we will always operate in the remote mode, which brings back into how do we set it up so that we can be effective in this completely remote world. So we are going back into what are the practices that we need so that we can have these things as a muscle in terms of how we operate and innovate as a company. Even before we did this, we had open sourced our processes and practices. We, it's called Atlassian Team Playbook. So if you search for it, you'll find it. It talks about how do you measure like specific, not just a high-level concept, but templates and uh, rules on how do you measure a health of a team, right? Because that's extremely important to start with, making sure that you have healthy teams across the board. Not a top-down saying, are you healthy or not, but teams themselves self-evaluate whether they're healthy. And that, that concept of self-evaluation from each of the teams happens not just in terms of one of these processes, but that you'll see a theme there. And even in technology, the systems that I try to define are bottoms up in terms of how the teams themselves can do it. For example, uh, the three alarm fire, one alarm fire that I said, teams themselves could can do it. There are, uh, we, we defined a, uh, operational maturity model, we call it service quest internally. Most of the places, operational maturity models are a top-down thing where you have gates in place and you have strict reviews and you have to meet certain bar, otherwise you don't ship the products. We don't do that. What we do is we have created this questionnaire and a bunch of tools underneath where each team can self-evaluate themselves and score themselves on a score of 100. So they get a score. And we have a leaderboard, and the leaderboard shows this is where you are in the quartile in terms of with all the other 1,200 services that are out there. And as you can imagine, people don't want to be in the bottom quartile. So it becomes a self-improvement mechanism where they're like, oh, I'm not doing great. This is not where I want to be. And they improve, and it just overall average goes up over time. These kinds of processes and playbooks help us to improve. Going back to your the remote world thing, 
over the last six months, we have been changing our practices to go fully remote in terms of how we operate. One of the things that we have done, which works extremely well, is to go to long form documents for all meetings, right? We don't do any more like zero presentations, PowerPoint presentations or any presentations. Always take the first five minutes, 10 minutes to read a document that's prepared. And then we write comments on the document and have a much richer discussion uh, at all levels, right? It, I do that in my staff meeting. We do that in the exec staff. We do it in the board meeting. So every meeting across the board is all long form text which helps us to get to the async mechanism, which helps us to, again, go back to the decoupling and making sure that we can work across different geos and people don't have to wake up in the middle of the night to attend a meeting because it's all long-form text which is written out and can be sent out to the company. So those kinds of mechanisms have helped us scale, and that's how we are setting up for the next five years, 10 years of growth. On that specific point, Shri, how do you think about the line between things that don't really require that sort of rigor, if you will, and process versus things that really do. It's a very lightweight issue. It can be solved by a couple of people speaking about it. You're not going to write a three-page document, right? So where, how do you just think about that line? We don't want people to write long-form documents just because, right? So they should be able to solve problems. The things that we write long-form documents are strategy documents on where we want to go next few years so that we can have a debate and align different teams, things that cut across, APIs that teams expose and why they're choosing what they're choosing. Like there are quarterly business review, look back and look forward and learnings what they have on different teams. There are very specific things that people write. And we also have a blogging culture. So people blog extensively across the board. And it's like the mechanism where even for me, I blog pretty much every other week in terms of different things that I do maybe every week in terms of how I communicate to the rest of the org. So there are areas where it's important for us to do long form documents. And I agree with you, Quentin, there are a number of cases where we want team to just execute and they, we don't want them to keep wasting time just trying to communicate or doing other things. The output and the outcome is a lot more important than the processes itself. Let's shift a little bit too, Sri. This is great on um, other interesting aspects of the culture and the way you develop, which is uh, the open source angle here. And you know, you've been at different companies with more or less. I believe you even worked back at Sun in the early Glassfish days. Talk about just your view of open source, how it impacts what you're doing today, and how you think about it going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Glassfish. Wow. That was 15 years ago. Let's zoom back. Things were different back in... I think I think it was 20 years, just to make you feel even better. <laughs> exactly. It was so different. We were, at that point, we were building J2E and App, App Glassfish App Server. We wanted to go 100% open source. And this was not common in terms of how you take open source. People would do open source where you try to push out something, but you have your own internal code base. We didn't want to have an internal code base. So we went 100% open source, 200 people developing on an external code base and completely 100% open source. And we wanted to go agile right? at that point where it was like the hottest thing. We were doing a weekly deploy with CICD across the board. In fact, Kozuke, who built who built Hudson was in our team doing CI/CD for Glassfish. We used Hudson back in the day at Sun. It was amazing how we were ahead. And 
it was simple things now that people understand was complicated then we didn't understand the difference between gpl v1 and gpl v2 and what licenses it's like what's all these things and we had somebody jim who was like an expert in licensing so we would always be jim tell us can we do this or not right so that was back then and we were targeting developers as you know developers are highly opinionated and vocal they have a pretty high bar and they will complain if you are not delivering or meeting that bar, which is great. And they love automation, right? They don't like manual work, which is all the learnings. If you go back to how, and these are the learnings, I guess, if I zoom forward to today, there are these learnings where if you are operating in a developer market, first of all, be transparent. Like it's extremely important. Developers love transparency, right? It may be good, it may be bad, but if you can explain, this is why your incident happened, this is what, when you operate a cloud, you are going, shit hits the fan, you will fail. They, everybody understands that. But explaining this is how we do things is actually better than saying, no, 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 we are great, right? Because you may not be great, and it's important to have the transparency. Having the feedback loop and having a developer relations where you listen, fix, iterate that loop extremely important with developers. The developers, as I said, will give feedback and that's a valuable feedback that you can make your product better and you better be in that loop and having specific dedicated people who can do that. And the other thing that also happens is developers have a huge voice in their companies. So making developers happy would not just be good for just this product for developers, but it also helps you to expand into the, the software market. And for example, we talk about this at Atlassian. The software market is not just the developers. We have product managers and designers. When you're releasing certain products, you pull in product marketing, you pull in finance, you pull in, you pull in pretty much the whole company because every company is becoming a software company. And you need to be able to address the whole company, not just the developers. So the targeting developers includes more than just developers. I have to tell you a funny quick story, which is just, you keep mentioning transparency in a developer first culture. At a prior unnamed company, we were really pitching, we're gonna be cool now, we're gonna be developer centric, we're gonna use our developer tools for everything and we want you to be transparent. And one of my favorite developers at the time took that as a, is an okay to start filing bugs on all of the executives. <laughs> so he would he would file a bug saying like Steve doesn't read his email quick enough or or Bob didn't answer my question clearly. So yeah, sometimes transparency in developer tools can go a little bit too far. <laughs> but, but I like the the spirit for sure. Absolutely. It's it's all about the team. And research proves that happy people make better decisions. So you want to have a happy team, a fun team. You want to create a fun culture. So I try to push myself sometimes beyond my comfort zone. I, I've done crazy things like singing song when I'm so bad at it, trying to write poems when I have no clue what I'm writing, doing funny all-hand videos and things like that. Steve, you might remember back in Horizon days, we had shipped a Horizon 1.0 and Steve, we invited you to this all-hands and you had no clue what was coming. And we had planned this Horizon Sweet Strikes Back skit where I was the Darth Vader and you were the C3PO and we gave you this sheet of paper and it's like, there, highlighted your lines, read it. And you're like, what? And you had a costume and you, you, you were great. You, and that was a lot of fun. Steve Herodas, C3PO. I like it. I like it. That's great, those three. And I do think you're right. This notion of humility as a leader, you've always done that quite well. And I, I think that plays out really well. 
Yeah, and I think people often see that humility uh, very correlated with a learning mindset, a growth mindset, right? Leaders who are willing to, you know, show that they're willing to try new things or be open to learning, uh, really, I think really helps, which gives you a little bit of permission, if you will, to also have the hard moments with engineers, right? When, the, you know, a, a project maybe is not quite going the way it should be or requires all hands on deck or requires that we... You know, to to your words, you know, three alarm fire that we engage differently. So, how are those tough moments, and and how how do you think about leading teams through those? And but again, balancing that safety, right, to to, to admit the mistakes and lean into it versus you know taking it seriously enough. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for me to because you grew up in a culture where you want to succeed and you have to get good grades and all that, especially growing up in India, it was always that you had to be in the top 10 to get into the certain school. You have this competitive nature and failing is not something that is part of your DNA. But acknowledging that you failed is not something that came easy for me, right? And that's something that I'm still working on. But Atlassian has this amazing culture where it's okay to miss certain things and fail because the only way you can improve is to acknowledge that and to continuously improve. And that's a culture that other companies should also think through and figure out how you can get into that mode. That doesn't mean you can't hold a high bar, you can't evaluate people, but it should also be part of the thing where are they improving continuously, are they building muscle and not just staying at the same level. Sri, we call this podcast equivalent to magic because at the core, we're all technologists and there's something just magic about technology when it kicks in. Across your broad career, what are some moments in, in that time when the magic really hit you that you've built something or seen something amazing? Wow. Awesome question. I go back. Technology has always amazed me. Starting with my very first Spectrum DX computer. Man, that was magical. First That week, I never slept. Then when I started learning Unix Unix was such so amazing to work with. It's extensible all the way, I guess, starting from how a transistor works, the operating system works and going to distributed, how internet is built, just seeing how the whole system works. Super awesome. I've been playing with machine learning AI over the last couple of years and it boggles me how the whole the models work. And you do this where you add a dropout layer and essentially drops layers and uh, variables, at the end, it improves your results. It's like, there are things that are like, wow, this is like amazing how the brain works and we are trying to simulate the brain. But what amazes me most is not any of these, it's the people behind and the teamwork that we, as a technology landscape, we have been amazing in terms of, we talked about open source, we talked about how we stand on the shoulders of giants, and we have the small teams that can execute and build amazing things. And I reflect back on, we were we are in a pretty bad shape in terms of COVID and just the virus, and mRNA, which is a technology that it's literally rescuing the world, right? It's, like, it's amazing to see we are living this fascinating times where just the teamwork and collaboration across this technology industry is magical. Sri, you're very clearly a, a systems thinker. Do you feel like you take a systems thinking approach to products and roadmap and, and organization structure and operations? Absolutely. So it's a complex adaptive system. Like all the things that you mentioned, organization is a complex adaptive system. Product is a complex adaptive system in terms of the, is part of the ecosystem. 
And complex adaptive systems work differently compared to a simple system where you know what the output is and what the input is. You can change it. You get the answer. Here, you poke certain things and something else changes. So the best way to do is going back to all the things that we talked about in this podcast, you need to make sure that you can measure things and you can change things. You take your best guess to start with, but then you start thinking the whole system on how it operates and try to build the best model so that you can try to experiment into the best solution that you want. And sometimes you don't get the right answer because there is no right answer in terms of how things this model behaves, but you keep iterating on it so you get better in terms of how you operate as a, an organization, as a technology. Code bases are pretty big, and especially with machine learning AI coming in, it also makes it even more complex in terms of how we do. And one of the things that we try to do in terms of complex systems, trying to break it down into making it complicated systems, which is you understand specific pieces, you create these microservices, you have clear interfaces, and then you link it. So at least when you break it down, you understand little pieces and you can operate on those and you can make those better. And hopefully the whole system becomes much better. Shri, uh, you've talked to us about a Project Vertigo, uh, which we'd like to have you speak about a little bit. And I can empathize with this a lot because I was at Microsoft when we took all of our on-prem products and turn them into Azure. And so I know just how daunting and transformative that is. When I started Atlassian, uh, we were mostly an on-prem company. We had a cloud, which was essentially taking the on-prem code base and running one per customer, single tenanted. And as you can imagine, we had 100,000 customers running 100,000 full stack, one per customer, extremely hard. Deployment would take 24 hours. Undeploy would take at least six hours. If something went wrong, it was... Teams had, team had automated the whole thing, but still extremely complicated. So we knew that was not the right approach to create a world-class cloud company. So we did a number of things and we started thinking, oh, we need to get to cloud. And the number of things that we had to go through were so complex that the team said, it's like mind-boggling. It gives me vertigo. And that's how the name Project Vertigo came in. What we did was we forked the code base and the organization so we could go cloud native. So we set up a on-prem org, which was different from the cloud org. And on the cloud org, we decided to go native on AWS, right? Which is different from how other companies choose. Some go into this Kubernetes or some abstraction layer and use the minimum thing. We were trying to optimize for speed. Right? We wanted to make sure that we add value to our customers and everything underneath. We could use any system that's out there. So we wanted to move fast. That, By the way, that decision has been amazing. Right? It's been great for us. We have gone from... Uh, doing on-prem-like deployments every so often to having 1,500 deployments a day right now. So that clearly has sped up our innovation. When we were moving there, we weren't just moving what we had to the cloud to AWS. We were also changing from single-tenant to multi-tenanted code base. And we were trying to create a platform. And we were trying to make sure that we removed all these legacy code because on-prem had the seven different versions of support for databases and 25 different versions of libraries. And we were trying to do literally a surgery across the code base, a 16-year-old code base. Not easy. And then you have to migrate 100,000 customers into this new platform. And as you know, migrations are hard. 
migrations are much harder than what you expect, right? So if you think it takes you six months, it'll take you 12 months. So one of the things that we did was we took the first year just to do the surgery and get to a point where we could migrate. And the second year, we essentially migrated all the customers over to the new platform. And that took us two years. Lots of learnings for this. I'll talk about those. But we started talking about Vertigo after we had done the migrations. And customers are like, oh, I didn't know you did this project. It seems to be faster. Because what was happening was in the single tenanted mode, a 2% startup in the garage had a full instance. And Fortune 500 company had the exact same full instance. There was no other way to add more servers because it wasn't horizontally scalable. And then from then on, we have been on this journey to create a platform and add more microservices and break down the monolith. So that journey continues and we are in a good shape, but as you know, it never ends. The monolith never fully goes away and you keep working on it. But the learnings from this Project Vertigo and many companies have to go through this monolith to microservices journey or on-prem to cloud journey. There are a few things that we learned that may be critical for people listening. Number one is it's extremely important to have clear goals, right? Goals on why you're doing it and make sure that it's at the company level, not just at the team level, but at the company level, because you know it'll take longer and you don't want people shutting it down. That's what happens in many places. So having the company buy-in, CEO needs to be vested in this, extremely important. Second is invest in tools, like early on, not during migration, but before migration. So we spent a lot of time building tools and creating cohorts of these customers. So we knew which bucket of customers to move, which cohort of customers to migrate over. And we were extremely thoughtful in migrating because we hadn't done the full surgery, but we knew it would work for customers because they only used a slice of the product, things like that. So that helped us to learn and fix things as we went. And we had changed so many things in terms of caching and in cloud native works differently in terms of how it is. We had all in memory caches and it doesn't work when you go into a cloud mode so we had to report all those and create memcache that sits outside and oh man that was hard but having these tools helped us to verify those and make sure that we add security layer on top and all the things that you have to do in a cloud native setup and the last thing people forget is it's a technical problem but more so it's a people and DNA problem, right? So, so you need to work on the culture and the people and DNA to make sure that they understand they're in cloud native. It's very different from on-prem. You build it, you run it. Culture is extremely important. It's easy to just explain. Say, like, oh, of course, you are building service. You get woken up. But when you actually get woken up, the way you respond, the muscle that you need to run this incident management, all those need to be completely built in. Otherwise, you migrate customers or you move into cloud or create these microservices and then there's chaos on the other side, right? You want to avoid that. Yeah, it's funny. When we went through Azure, we used to talk about how the culture changed, our processes changed, the technology changed, the business model changed, like literally everything changed. It was like over a two-year period, you would hardly recognize anything other than some of the people were still there. (laughs) Which is exactly what has happened for Atlassian too. Now we are considered a premium cloud company. We have end of life to our on-prem server product. And we are focused on building out all the advanced features in cloud. We have standard premium enterprise SKUs and we have built out a full portfolio of things. So it's been an awesome journey last five years. It's a great story. 
Sri, this has been awesome. Um, congrats on an epic career and being at a great company like Atlassian and, and, and on all the things you've done there. We really appreciate your taking the time here today. And uh, yeah, really learned a lot. Thanks for having me. Equivalent to Magic is a podcast from General Catalyst, a venture capital firm investing in powerful, positive change that endures. To learn more about our investment approach and our portfolio, go to generalcatalyst.com. The show is produced in partnership with Postscript Audio. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Dalvin Abuaji helped produce the show. Sean Marquand composed the theme song and mixed the show. Special thanks to Rhonda Scott for making the show possible. Please give us a rating wherever you get your shows and spread the word on social media. Stay with us as we go deep on the technical stories behind the world's most influential companies. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Harrod. This is Equivalent to Magic. <laughs>